Today's episode is brought to you by Fangoria Magazine. This year, Fangoria Magazine is turning 40 years old and celebrating accordingly. If you haven't checked out the latest Fangoria issues, prepare to be blown away. It's now a deluxe 100-page quarterly edition with glossy, thick pages and articles and interviews that will never be published online. The only way to read them is by getting your hands on a physical, collectible copy of your own. We can't give anything away because the experience deserves to be a surprise. But we can safely say that you do not want to miss a single page. They're definitely celebrating their 40th in style. Head over to Fangoria.com and learn more and subscribe today. You can use promo code NIGHTMARE to get 15% off your subscription. So head over to Fangoria.com and use promo code NIGHTMARE for 15% off your new subscription. Tonight's episode of Nightmare University is brought to you by Six Soaps. Six Soaps offers a wide variety of horror-inspired handmade soaps. Spawned from the mind of one woman, Six Soaps are definitely a horror lifestyle upgrade. Designed for actual daily use, these moisturizing soaps feature intricate designs that will stay sick until the last sliver. With sinister scents that cater to both guys and ghouls, they're sure to be a match made in hell for every horror lover. Shop your black heart out at sicksoaps.etsy.com and save 15% when you use coupon code FANGO, F-A-N-G-O, through July 15th. And follow at sicksoaps on Instagram for limited releases, upcoming appearances, and your daily dose of sickness. Thank you so much, Six Soaps. And welcome to Nightmare University. I'm Dr. Rebecca McKendry, and tonight we are going to be talking about a subgenre of horror films from the 1960s and 70s um, that, admittedly, I'm I love watching them, but I don't know a huge amount of the history behind. And this is hag exploitation. And I will tell you guys from the start that the phrase hag exploitation has always given me pains um, because what these movies do. And we're going to talk about them at length, and I'm bringing on an amazing guest to join me, David DelVal, who knows far more about these films than I do. Um, and what these films do is they took kind of the first generation of starlets, the, the Shelley Winters, the Joan Crawfords, and the Betty Davis, and they put them in these exploitive roles where they're really kind of playing up the fact that they're old. It plays up the fact that they're crone-like, that they're aging. Um, the characters in these movies are always demented, um, some way um, mentally unstable and most of them spend the entire movies trying to reclaim their youth that they become obsessed with how beautiful they were when they were young and um, then they spend the entire movie kind of refusing to admit that they are now these crone like beings and that they are constantly trying to reclaim their youth. There is so much about these movies um, that if I just kind of look at what they are and how their plots function, that they kind of, I bump with them as a female, you know, that, to think that that is what aging is and that that's all that's left after, you know, being a beautiful starlet. And even the phrase hag exploitation um, makes me cringe. But at the same time, these movies were so successful in the 1960s and 70s, starting with whatever happened to baby Jane, um, that I am so just completely enamored with them as historical pieces like what was it about that time that made whatever happened to baby jane so successful and what was it that kept these movies going for about 10 years and so um we're going to be talking a lot tonight about gender identity 
about how these films functioned at the time. Um, is this a subgenre that could ever return again? That's something that I'm always kind of um, interested in. Because in horror, we see a lot of kind of bursts of particular types of movies come and go. Like we'll see a quick burst of found footage films, and then we may not see them again for another decade. Or we'll see a quick burst of um, tiny monsters movies like ghoulies or critters or gremlins, and then we may not see that again for several decades. And so when looking at these very specific specific um, subgenres, especially the ones that are historically dominating, I, I'm always interested to see if this is something that could return. Like in 20 years, are we going to see hagsploitation come back? Um, the other phrases for hagsploitation are psychobiddy and grand dame gignol. And both of these additional terms also feel exploitive, but this was the 1960s and 70s. And so when I think of these films, I think of these much in kind of the way that I historically equate a lot of the exploitation films of the 1970s. These were a product of history. They were a product of what was going on at the time, which we're going to get into details in. They are a product of the fact that this was kind of our first generation of Hollywood starlets, these kind of, um, you know, pillars that represented what Hollywood was, Joan Crawford and Betty Davis and people like that. And so we're now finally seeing them um, after decades of them being being on the top and the stars in these films and very glamorous, we're now seeing them age before the public's eyes. And so what kind of we do to that and what that means as a society and then also how the media handles it. Um, so I look at these historically in much the same way I look at exploitation across the board. Exploitation pinpoints one thing that they can kind of use as the gimmick. And so in kind of the whole scope of exploitation, exploiting the age of women um, does not seem nearly as bad when we look at like Nazi exploitation or defiling of nuns and some of the other crazy stuff or the shock films that we had during the exploitation era. So these a lot of times don't get classified in as exploitation films, but they definitely still are because it still follows that same pattern where it's targeting one specific gimmick, in this case, these aging stars and using that as kind of the selling point of the film as what the appeal is and what's going to carry you throughout. Um, it starts, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that, but the official kickoff is whatever happened to baby Jane. And then this persists through about the mid seventies. And so um, please join us for psycho bitty hagsploitation and grand dom gignol. Joining me is David Del Vault. Did I say that right? Del Val. Del Val. I was trying so hard. Oh, we've known each other for so long. I know. I've always gone the French route, and you've mm, been Del Val. I've gone the French route, too. <laughs> and you are a journalist and a film historian, but you definitely tend to focus on camp and cult cinema. Is that right? Well, I like to focus on what I like. And uh, cult movies is such a broad term. It can encompass everything from Jess Franco to Jean Roland. And, and then some good directors like, uh, you know, any kind of horror film and sometimes not even horror films. Movies like William Friedkin's Cruising mm -hmm. certainly fall into this category. I'd call uh, that a horror uh, film. Uh, Nicholas Reffin's Neon Demon, definitely. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think the there's a broad stroke here. We can literally gives us uh, the reason to talk about anything that gives us a kind of special, unique look at art. You know, I think that movies have always been an art form, and sometimes we get good art, and sometimes we get not so good art, but it's strictly in the eye of the beholder, I think. 
That's a great theory. And you've written for um, outfits like Fangoria, Cinema Fasti- uh, Fantastique, Video, um, Watch Video Watchdogs. Psychotronic, Michael Weldon's. I've done more interviews for Michael than practically anybody except Tim Lucas. The trouble is, I've do- I was doing all of these before they started giving out rondos. So I, <laughs> a little late. You know, when I talked to Tim the other day, and he's got like 20 of them. I know. I picture he just, just has shelves lined well, with rondos. Well, I mean, how many times do you want to look at rondo hat and honey? I mean, I'm- I got one. <laughs> I got one. I've got two. I've got my monster kid of Call of Fame, which I deserved. And then I got one for Suspiria with with my friend Derek Botello. Well, we really enjoyed that. I mean, I did that as a favor to Derek. And, you know, Suspiria is such an amazing movie, and they did such a brilliant job with it that it it swept the awards. Mm -hmm. So I was glad to be part of that. Yeah. But you are joining us tonight to talk about hagsploitation, which admittedly is a subgenre that I'm fascinated with, mm-hmm. but I don't know huge amounts of the history behind. Well, I think the history of it really started during World War II with film noir. When the men went away to war, the women were left on their own, and being women, they became very empowered. And when the men came back from the war, they weren't quite ready for what they saw, which was what actresses like Gloria Graham and... Uh, Joan Crawford and Betty Davis and uh, Barbara Stanwyck. These are women that, you know, are making money on their own. They don't need men. They become part of what were called cougars. They would go after younger men like Alan Ladd or uh, uh, John Garfield. And then those kind of morphed into the hard, bitter kind of women that Joan Crawford and Betty Davis started playing in the 50s. Mm -hmm. But it all started with Gloria Swanson's performance in Sunset Boulevard in 1950. There you had an aging grand dame actress, and she was only 50. So yeah, I, mean, I was really, only... <laughs> and, 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 and of course, if they had hired Montgomery Clift to play the William Holden role, it would have made more sense, because I always felt Bill Holden was too butch and macho mm-hmm. to play someone that would be kept by a woman. But then if you run out of money, you'd be surprised what people will do. Uh, so I think Sunset Boulevard was the beginning of that. Prior to that was the, the noir period. Mm-hmm. And then 1962, we have Robert Aldrich's Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, which made a fortune. It reinvented Betty Davis and Joan Crawford, and it firmly established what we came to consider the psycho bitty Grand Guignol horror hag. None of these phrases really would be... You wouldn't say this to Joan Crawford, would you? What would no. your horror act and I actually have questions about that <laughs> later, like kind of like how they perceived it. But let's go to Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, yes. because that's the one, um, even though that I agree, I rewatched Sunset Boulevard in prep for this, and it does. It fits every single one of these notches. It it kind of fills the traits completely, which well, we'll talk about film. in a sec. It's yeah, a and, it, and it totally functions as one. But that said, there is like a, an almost 10-year gap before between that and Whatever Happens to Baby well, you Jane. have to realize in those periods, and I think this is true now what we're going through with franchise, mm-hmm. this franchise craze, Dracula, Frankenstein made huge amounts of money when they, com- they, came, they, were, they uh, came out, but they didn't, the studios, Universal did not rush out and make a sequel the next week like they do now. Mm-hmm. If something's successful, they'll just turn it out in six more months, and then it'll be on you know, home viewing before that. They would like The Bride of Frankenstein was five years later. Dracula's Daughter was six years later. Uh, Sunset Boulevard made a fortune, but there was no son of Sunset Boulevard. Yeah. So this was a kind of unique thing. And when and Baby Jane came out, it made a ton of money, but they didn't try and do a sequel because that wouldn't have been clever. Completely. They made Hush, Hush, Sweet Charlotte. 
And we'll talk about that in a minute because that is, a, uh, I did the audio commentary for that for Twilight Time and we went into great detail and research about uh, Joan Crawford and her departure and then the arrival of Olivia de Havilland. Then Olivia de Havilland makes a lady in a cage and it just seems like every actress over 50 was fair game. Yeah. And they started writing scripts for them. But Baby Jane was the brainchild truly of Joan Crawford who was realizing very rapidly that women like herself had to take charge of their careers. Joan did it with a movie called Sudden Fear where mm -hmm. she didn't take a salary. She took a percentage and it made her very wealthy. Vincent Price did the same thing with House on Haunted Hill. House on Haunted Hill, he Smart could have gotten move. his $50,000 but he said, let's go castle. No, I think I'd like to make some real money. And so he took 15% and he became a millionaire. So Joan Crawford went to see Betty Davis on Broadway in Night of the Iguana and brought her this book, but said the one thing she could say to, to Betty Davis that would make her pay attention, I'm not playing the lead, you are. You're baby Jane. Mm -hmm. Now, I, I assume that you've seen Feud. Of course. Um, but just for those of our some, listeners. Some of Feud is correct and some of it is wishful thinking. I, yeah, I didn't want to get too far into it because I figured a large amount of it was fictionalized. Or, or we'll call it dramatized. Yeah, yes, not that. Mm -hmm. That that was true. Um, but can you talk just briefly about that the Feud did exist. Joan Crawford and Betty Davis uh, yes, tended the, the, to, the, to well, kind of. Well, you know, I think the Feud started at Warner Brothers when Joan Crawford was let go at MGM. Mm -hmm. You must remember that Joan Crawford was a star way before Betty Davis. She was in The Unknown with Lon Chaney in 1927. Betty Davis didn't get into the scene until in the early 30s. So Joan was already a star. And when she got let out at MGM, that was a huge kind of emotional uh, vacuum for her. And her self-worth and her identity was a, in a crisis. But she was a strong woman, and she went to Warner Brothers, which unfortunately already had a queen there named Betty Davis. So all of a sudden, Joan's getting scripts that have Betty Davis's fingerprints. I don't want to do this. Give it to her. Or whatever. And so they were kind of rivals. Their feud began at Warner Brothers. Mm -hmm. Because remember, everyone turned down Mildred Pierce. Joan Crawford does it and wins an Academy Award. So there definitely was the beginning of a rivalry, not to mention that these two women had many of the same men in their lives. Franchot Tone was married to, to Joan Crawford, but worked with Betty Davis. And you can go back and you can go back and forth with all the men that they worked with. And they worked. They sometimes went from like uh, uh, John, Johnny Guitar had Sterling Hayden. He went from that to do the star with Betty Davis. Can you imagine what these men must have put up with? To oh go my from, gosh! Can you imagine Joan Crawford? Saying, all right, what did she do now? Well, how did she do this? And you know, vice versa. So the feud began, but I think the one thing that was th that Betty Davis never forgave Joan for, which is what caused the problems on Charlotte. The night of the Academy Awards, and this mm -hmm. is documented in Feud as well, Betty Davis was nominated, Joan was not. Joan then decided to campaign with all the other nominees, if you're not going to be here for the award, may I accept it for you? Anne Bancroft was one of them and said, I'm doing a play in London. I would be thrilled if Joan Crawford would accept for me. Well, as it turned out, Anne Bancroft wins that night. So Joan Crawford sweeps past Betty Davis. Excuse me, I have a Best Actress award to pick up. Oh, my gosh. Can you imagine? And everyone warned Joan not to do that. Don't do that. Betty will. Don't do it. She couldn't resist. Wow. And so... 
then they decided they had to make this other movie together because, and they, sh and, and my opinion on all of this, and it's in the audio commentary I did for Twilight Time, I believe that Joan should have stayed. And I've seen enough photographs from the beginnings of the movie. Joan Crawford completed all the scenes that didn't involve uh, Betty. Oh, so she'd already shot she portions shot of it. She shot 40 minutes. In fact, there are stills of Joan looking at her shredded dress in the closet. Yeah. You know where that comes in the movie. So that's how much she shot, all the point of view shot. When you see the movie now and the cab pulls up to the southern mansion, it's Joan in the taxi, not Olivia. Mm. So I would love to see this footage. And when we did it, I, we've been trying to get to, to into the Fox vaults just because you know, hopefully they didn't throw it all away. Yeah. I mean, this goes right up there with the Bela Lugosi footage from Frankenstein mm -hmm. that Paul Ivanhoe shot. Where is that? When I moved here a thousand years ago, I went in Paul Ivanhoe's garage. He was still alive. And I was looking for just one. Because cinematographer said, we will give you the cover if you can show a color frame of Bela Lugosi as, as the Frankenstein monster. Yeah. And that's like the holy grail. Oh, my gosh. But we yeah. couldn't find it. But, yeah, the footage of, of Joan Crawford as Miriam would have been just fabulous. But, you know, Olivia did. I mean, now that we've seen, I've seen the movie so many times, that whole scene where, because, see, Joan did not want to get slapped by, I mean, Betty didn't want to get slapped by Joan. Mm -hmm. But by the time they got to that scene, Olivia had had it with her, too. So she got, anyway, yeah. you look at it. But that whole scene where uh, Olivia goes, now you just shut your mouth, mm -hmm. you know, and I don't ever want you to, you know, that was like, whoa, because you'd never seen Olivia get that bitchy. But then, of course, she does Lady in a Cage, and, you know, we get into all of that. But all these women did that, and Agnes Moorhead, bless her, in Charlotte, she's playing a black maid, mm -hmm. only she's not black. Yeah, that's such an interesting role because I was trying. I mean, they're and all clearly... those black women that are, are in the in the atmosphere scenes with Agnes are just looking at her. She's going, "I know what you're doing with me." It just Charlotte. feels like such an awful, like and she got an Oscar weird, nomination for that. Uh, it's it just feels racist, but it's it's just but a it's weird not. role. Yeah. It's a um, weird role, and she, yeah. it's all done with love and I, anything Agnes does. She's one of the great. Agnes Moorhead is one of the great cinema actresses mm -hmm. of all time and Orson Welles loved her now I was not once I started um doing all the research like I had seen whatever happened to baby Jane many many times I did not realize kind of the amount of respect that that movie got like it felt exploitive and campy even for 1960s when it came out but it apparently was heralded as like it received well, amazing all, critiques you had Joan Crawford and Betty Davis mm -hmm. both two actresses that are immensely respected because they were beautiful women. Well, Joan was a beautiful woman. And, and in spite of a lot of the criticism, I think Betty and Joan were very fine actresses. Mm -hmm. And I've done enough. I just did Female on the Beach with Joan. And that's campy. But Joan was like on point with who she was, how she needed to be presented in a movie. And Betty was the same way. And when audiences of the day saw these two women that were rivals at studios for decades in a movie where they're feeding each other rats and kicking the shit off each other and down the stairs and impersonating each other. They just, I mean, I was around. It was a, people were screaming with laughter. Wow. Now, in your research, what were Betty and Joan aware of on set? Like, they were they aware that they were being kind Everything. of made to look terrible? Everything. I mean, obviously, like, I'm sure that 
knowing how skilled Betty and Davis were, they knew that that top well, light was making them look like if, shit. If you look at the well, Joan doesn't look as much like shit as Betty da- as Betty Davis. But does. I'm sure she was aware that well, the Betty lighting put, was being placed. Uh, Betty places. wore clown makeup. Yeah. Betty, see, here's the difference. The difference between Betty Davis and Joan Crawford is Betty Davis is an actress. Mm -hmm. Joan Crawford is a movie star. And even Betty Davis said, I wish I were as beautiful as Joan Crawford. Having said that, though, Betty Davis would not hesitate to shave her head when she played Elizabeth I in The Virgin Queen. She did not mind looking frumpy in Patty Chayefsky's kitchen drama with uh, uh, Ernest Borgnine, The Catered Affair. Mm -hmm. She did not mind looking frumpy. Joan Crawford, no way. No way. Yeah. So that's was the and that's why Joan chose to play Blanche. Because she and, and she kept getting her hair done. And even when she was being emaciated, she still made sure her key light was these women were outrageous. Oh but, yeah. But you know what? They were thoroughly professional and a lot of the feuding. I mean, I've got millions of pictures of them laughing and listening to the radio, and you know those two had had gossip. You mm-hmm. know those two could talk shit for hours. Uh, so, the, you know, the one line in the movie, gee, we could have been friends, that is a line that transcends the film. It's really Betty and Joan. They could have been friends. They should have been friends. They had more in common with each other than anybody else in Hollywood. It's true. But they just couldn't do it. And I think a lot of it, if I may say so, was manipulated by men. Jack Warner, uh, Harry Cohn at Columbia, uh, uh God, I mean, at MGM, it was just, look what happened to Judy Garland. I would assume it was even the media kind of feeding the feud. But the one thing these women could count on, that you sure can't these days, what stayed in Vegas stayed in Vegas. Whatever happened, the studio took care of it. If you were gay, they hushed it up and got you married. If you drunk and run over somebody, they buried them in Nevada. They just did whatever it took to keep you looking as pristine as you possibly could, Mm -hmm. because the studio took care of you. All of these people were left adrift when the studio system died, and they all went out. And look at what Joan and Betty did. They just became, they just filmed uh, their own production companies. Yeah. Smart. And look, Madonna does that now. You know, Sharon Stone did it for a while. Um, yeah, you, you learn to be a man in a man's game. So this first film comes out was immediately we see um, Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte and then Lady in a Cage. Now, both of these feel pretty different from whatever happened to Baby Jane, well, aside you, from the fact you see, that now, this is like the, that mentality. Then you didn't just you couldn't do Friday the 13th, mm-hmm. one, two and three or, you know, scream five, six and eight. What they did, they waited. Betty Davis uh, was like she was uh, she participated in the profits. So it was to everyone's advantage to make a sequel, but they waited a year, and then they were all getting offers because remember what these women did. Betty Davis did uh, Dead Ringer Mm -hmm. playing twins, and that's a scream. I did a screening of that at the Arrow with Monica Henry, whose father, Paul, directed it, and Monica played the maid Janet in the movie, so I'm sitting up on stage with her, and and, and, uh, Monica said, David, Promise me you won't do a Betty Davis impersonation. And I (laughs) lied. And as soon as we got up there, I did a lot of Betty Davis impersonations because the movie is hilarious. And uh, then Joan Crawford did Straight Jacket. Mm -hmm. Which is phenomenal. I just watched, I I watched Dead Ringer last week, but I watched Straight Jacket last night. And I have to say, it may be my favorite of all of them. Well, it's so much fun. That for me, Straight Jacket was the one where I feel um, the formula really starting to, to kind of congeal together. And I read William Cowell 
Castle's book a couple of years ago, um, America Screaming Pants Off or something, whatever the title was. And he said in it that um, he didn't need a gimmick for this film because he had Joan Crawford with an no axe. Kidding. And you don't need a gimmick when you have Joan Crawford with an well, axe. Well, you want to know with that, Betty Davis was laughing about, look at Joan Crawford over at Columbia making that piece of shit. It's a Z movie. Now she's making at Warner Brothers Dead Ringer. But guess what? Straight Jacket made far more money. You know why? Because Joan went on the road with it. Oh. She and William Castle got out there and threw little paper axes at people and had a ball. Oh and my Joan gosh. knew how to sell. Joan knew how to hustle clothes, hustle men, and sell movies. Betty Davis, not so much, perhaps. But uh, they both got all these offers. And, of course, Joan got connected with Herman Cohen, our, mm -hmm. our favorite Hollywood producer who did Horrors of the Black Museum and Black Zoo, and I was a teenage werewolf. I was a teenage Frankenstein. He does Berserk and Trog yeah. with, with, with Joan. And Betty, I mean, Betty's last movie is Wicked Stepmother for Larry Cohen. Mm -hmm. And to dispel a rumor right there, she wasn't fired or anything. Her dentures wouldn't fit, and Betty just realized it was time to pack it in. So she left with regrets. There was no heart, because I talked to Larry about that before he died. And Larry loved Betty Davis. Mm -hmm. And he said the, the scene at the beginning where she goes in, and there's a, a widow, the, the husband there is a widow. The, the widow, he's a widower, and he's just been recently widowed by Joan Crawford. There's a picture of Joan on the oh. And Betty Davis gets to go, oh, I'm glad she's dead. And I mean, it's like, it's, it's just like, it never ends. So this feud went right to the grave. Oh my but gosh. isn't it funny, both of them wound up, I mean, Betty wound up with Wicked Stepmother, Joan wound up with Trog. Mm -hmm. Who, so as Kurt Siodmak used to say, who's winning? <laughs> you know, I, I went to see Kurt Siodmak when he was about 98, and he didn't like Lon Chaney Jr. too much, even though the Wolfman was his claim to fame, right? So we're sitting there at 96, Kurt Siodmak looks over at me. I said, what did you think of Lon Chaney Jr.? And Kurt goes, well, what do you want to know? Lon Chaney Jr. is dead, and I'm not. Who's winning? <laughs> and I went, well, you're certainly not. Well, I wanted to say that. <laughs> I, was, I was very polite because he was old. So by the time that we get um, straight jacket and get into Berserk and things like that, we really start to kind of get like a formula for these movies Yes, where it's a woman um, aging um, who's terrorizing people around her. And she's very, she can support herself. Yeah. She's always self-contained, these women. A lot of they them don't need men. used to be starlets, used to be somehow glamorous, whether they were, you yes. know, debutantes or things like that. And so we really, I mean, I think that they first started playing that up with Baby Jane and then again in Sweet Charlotte. Well, you know, but. they got Tallulah Bankhead over mm -hmm. at Hammer to do Die, Die, My Darling. And in that, and Tallulah is very theatrical, they got her to play a woman who's a religious zealot. Mm -hmm. But they have a scene, just what you're describing, where towards the end of the movie, Tallulah goes up to the attic where she had been a Broadway actress, yeah. a chorus girl, and she puts on lipstick, which she would never wear, and she looks at her old pictures, and, she, and she's drunk. And she also realizes the one thing that carries through all these movies you cannot bring back your youth. Yep. And youth is so important to you because you have no self-esteem or self-worth. Which broke my heart um, because it's such a shitty message. But like when I was watching Straight Jacket last night, they kept saying to Joan Crawford, like, you can't pretend to wear that dress. You wore that dress 20 years ago. And me, I'm sitting there going, well, she can wear the fucking dress if she, she wants to wear the damn dress. Let me tell you something. When Joan Crawford, as it, because when Joan Crawford in the, at the prologue, when Joan gets off the train, She's got the black wig and the weird dress and the bracelet that jingles. Mm -hmm. And the voiceover is, here's Lucy Horman, or whatever her name is, 
uh, a woman and a very aware of it as she saunters in. Of course, her husband's in bed. Lee Majors, of all people. Laying is, fully clothed with li- another woman. With another woman because <laughs> yeah. the kind of sex they had is all like, yeah. you know, it's all through the mind. So, of course, uh, then when she wears the dress again, she looks exactly like she did because Joan made sure of that. But the scene that drives, I mean, I've seen it in a room full, in a theater full of gay men. They all howl and the, the theater levitates when Joan tries to light a cigarette and she takes the match and strikes it on a record. <laughs> and then she walks over to her to her daughter's boyfriend and puts her fingers in his In his mouth. mouth. But she says, I mean, everything she does is just incredible. She goes, what are you drinking? He goes, I have a scotch. She goes, oh, you're one of those. What does that even mean? <laughs> but you just feel like she's going to rip his clothes off. Right? And you know he's going for it. Oh, my. Yeah, he That's seemed what... into it until the daughter like called him back and was <clears> like, hey there. <throat> Bruce Dern was he? Was Bruce that? Dern was in that. No, it was George Kennedy. Thank you, Bruce, Bruce Dern. Dern is in Marnie. Marnie. Oh, and well, he was in. Um, there was another. Was he? Oh, he's Hush in Charlotte. Sh- Charlotte. Yeah, I he's was John. Say. He's yeah. the one that. that John she's Mayhew. John yeah. Mayhew. If that's when we're. Yeah, we got to get into Bruce in that. Um. So the other theme that I really start to see developed by about the mid '60s with these movies is the idea of gaslighting, um, of convincing these women that they are completely going crazy for some type of gain in some capacity. Could you talk a little bit about that? Well, I think as to use the term gaslighting, it started with the play Angel Street, which Vincent Price did on Broadway Mm -hmm. with Judith Evelyn, who was in The Tingler, to show you the six degrees of Kevin Bacon. So gaslight, uh, Angel Street becomes gaslight. They get Charles Boyer and Ingrid Bergman. She wins the Oscar, or she's nominated. So is Angela Lansbury playing the maid. Gaslight is a huge success and it established the driving the woman crazy motif mm-hmm. which kind of began in Jane Eyre a little with the the, the woman in the attic the first yeah. wife and, and comes that. back in the tingler and yeah. thus we come back full in circle the tingler with the very actress that was in angel street yeah. so it's all tied up in with a little bow and uh, then you have like in in aunt alice you know, she's trying to convince her housekeepers that they need to give her her money and that they're not quite smart enough to handle their own money. Or you'll get someone like Baby Jane. Baby Jane knows she's going crazy, and what motivates her to tie her sister up is when she realizes the lawyers are going to close the house down. Mm-hmm. Where are you going to put me, in some nice little nut house? I don't think so. Have another rat. You know, and at this point, and in Charlotte, too, they're driving her crazy. Yeah. But that scene on the staircase, if you've never seen Hush, Hush, Sweet Charlotte, wait for the moment when Betty Davis descends the stairs head first, one take, no rehearsal. She just said, I know what I'm going to do. And Olivia de Havilland and Joseph Cotton are watching this. And she goes, using the, uh, you know, A-E-I-O-U kind of thing, she starts to scream. She holds the scream in. She lets her hair fall. It's an incredible it's tour de remarkable. force. remarkable. No, and you want to, if you never think these women are not fantastic actresses, just play these little moments. Mm-hmm. Or the scenes in Baby Jane when Joan Crawford's watching her younger self on television and the ones here, oh, I told Lloyd you should have hold that shot just a little bit longer. You get, I just am so emotional seeing Joan watch her younger self because it's poignant, you know. Because that's the problem, I think, with actresses looking at their careers. How do you possibly compete with the fact that you're forever young? Yeah. I've done enough movie conventions, and I'm sure you have too. I've sat with these aging actresses, mm-hmm. and I know how it is to have kids walk up, and they'll look at the pictures, and like, is this you? Oh, yeah. Really? What do you think I'm sitting here for? But, you know, I mean, they have no sense of... And it, it's 
it just cuts away a little at you all the time, or no one will come to you. I saw Haley Mills sit at one of these things, and no, and I remember when I was a kid, Haley oh, Mills she was, was in mobbed. everything. She oh was my gosh, huge. yeah. Oh, that's a shame. Yeah. Um. So we've got the gaslighting. We've got older women in kind of these, um, you know, with these glamorous pasts who are now either terrorizing those around her or being terrorized themselves, and they're all still trapped in kind of this youthful glamour. What made this so um, 1960s? Like, what made this such a popular trend in the 1960s? Well, I think the 60s was a kind of reinvention because the younger, the, the, the generation that was coming up was rebelling. The generation that was coming up wanted to do what Dr. Leary wanted. It was like tune in, turn on, and drop out, mm-hmm. and be your own. And Leary, of course, got a lot of shit for that by telling people, don't let someone tell you what a drug is. Try it. You tell me what happens. And, you know, that was a little reckless of him, but I understand why he said that. But I think that the 60s was the beginning of the end of the uh, the dream, mm-hmm. the American dream as as represented in Hollywood. Because, remember, there is a sharp decline and then a reemergence of a different type of picture after Easy Rider. Easy Rider showed Hollywood, old Hollywood, that it was dead. Yeah. Because these young guys came in with very little except their their dreams, their money. They they knew what they, they believed in what they did and Easy Rider was a, a runaway hit. All of a sudden every studio had they got rid of all the old timers and they started James Aubrey came in to Fox and all of a sudden what are we getting? All of a sudden the studios reek of marijuana. Everybody is turning on, everybody's dropping acid. What are the movies Beyond the Valley of the Dolls and Myra Brekovich? Mm-hmm. Can you imagine being on at, at Fox when those were two on the lot? I mean everybody was loaded. And it was a time when no one really knew what was going to hit. And then Rosemary's Baby comes along, and then Antonioni does Zabrinsky Point, and then Andy Warhol's movies start coming out. There's no looking back. Yeah. There's no looking back. And even Warhol took the Sunset Boulevard approach in a movie called Heat, where he got the late Sylvia Miles. Is that the teacher one? No, that's the one where Sylvia Miles is an ex-movie star, and she picks up Joe D'Alessandro in a motel run by Pat Ast. And what else happens is just like she, he goes to the mansion and mooches off her until she's sick of it and blah, blah, blah. But yeah, the 60s just literally, and this happened in Europe too. Look at the British films, the British invasion. Look at the what I call the psychedelic uh, kaleidoscope movies of the 60s, all mm-hmm. with Twiggy, Rita Tushingham, Lynn Redgrave, Smashing Time. Uh, Sonny and Cher, Cher does, they do their big movie that William Friedkin directed. So did Hagsploitation spill over to the UK as well? I mean, I guess oh, you could consider like, like the devils to a degree. Well, as actually, like. no. We actually had legitimate, uh, Lana Turner went over and did a movie called The Terror of Sheba mm-hmm. that was almost like a Hammer film that was done for Tyburn that was kind of like a, a Hammer amicus type studio that Kevin Francis, Freddie Francis's ne'er-do-well son was running. And uh, he did a couple of pictures with Peter Cushing, The Ghoul, and Legend of the Werewolf. But he did Terror of Sheba with Lana Turner. Mm -hmm. Then Lana Turner did another one called Witch's Brew with our friend Angus Scrim. Only it was called Rory Guy then. And uh, it was about Conjure Wife, the Fritz Leiber, that had been done as Weird Woman with Lon Chaney Jr. in the 40s. Wait, Conjure Wife, is that the same one that was Burn, Witch, Burn, and Night of the Eagle? Yes. Okay. So that's been filmed Four, Four times? times? Wow. But, but oh, you wouldn't know it with because the witch's brew was... Uh, Richard Benjamin was in it. I would also say Season of the Witch classifies as that as well, uh, yes. even though it's not connected well, and, in any and capacity. Well, and the witch who came in from the sea mm-hmm. is kind of a thing. But no, there were definitely... And then Betty Davis went over to Hammer 
and did the anniversary. Oh, which yeah. And The Nanny. Now, The Nanny was directed by Seth Holt, and that is a black and white movie made in 1965 that's really one of Davis's great performances. Mm -hmm. No makeup, very, because, see, Betty didn't mind doing that. Now, The Anniversary's a train wreck even though Betty Davis gets to sing uh, Rock of Ages. Cleave to me! <laughs> and uh, <laughs> when you hear Betty, Rock of Ages, it's hilarious. But uh, And she wears an eye patch to match every outfit. I oh mean, that'll look. Oh, my gosh. That's, per that's very Madonna of It her. is. Well, Madonna stole yes. all that, honey. Well, you know, Madonna used to get on the phone with Marlena Dietrich and talk for hours. I heard that. So Mar Madonna's really a film buff. Like, yeah. You know, Madonna likes the same kind well, of stuff. Well, you can see it. Yeah, you can it's see in it her kind work. of bleed into well, a lot of stuff. she got Udo Kier to be mm -hmm. in uh, her, her rock video deeper and deeper. Which totally makes sense. It I does. mean, if you're going to put somebody in, it's Udo Kier. Oh, of course. So, as these movies kind of push through the 1960s, they move into the 70s, and then we get kind of two that kind of cap it. We get What's the Matter with Helen, which honestly um, is one of my favorite, um, just because it's all dance oriented. Well, it's directed by my good friend Curtis, Curtis Harrington. Harrington. And yes. then we get Who Slew Auntie Rue, also Curtis Harrington. Yes. So, what was it that kind of brought it to this abrupt end? Shelly Winters. Shelly Winters. Shelly Winters, honey. Shelly Winters put it all in the put it all in the grave and covered it up nicely. Well, I mean, they shall. I mean, Shelley and Betty both went on to do other films after this. Shelley had The Visitor, and I mean, Shelley had the Poseidon Adventure. Yeah, but <laughs> what was it that kind of deemed Who Slew Auntie Rue like the done? Like this is it? This is the nail. Well, in the first of all, we're coming to the end of American International Pictures mm -hmm. as a force in Hollywood. Remember, they had had such a long run, and it went right through the '60s with Wild in the Streets. Two in the Attic, Angel, Angel, Down We Go, all these marvelous, hilarious, crazy movies. Mm -hmm. And then they made a deal to go over to, to England, and Betty, or Shirley, uh, Shirley, uh, Shelley Winters had a two-picture deal, and she also had director approval. So What's the Matter with Helen was done at MGM, and that was the picture that Curtis had put his whole career on. It's fucking bonkers. It's an amazing yeah. movie, Betty. Uh, uh, Debbie Reynolds... Wonderful performance, Dennis Weaver, Michael McLanamore. It's a brilliant movie about old Hollywood and the Loeb Leopold murders where it's the mothers of the two boys that were convicted for murdering mm -hmm. this boy. And a gay, gay situation. So um, Shelley Winters, a very difficult actress, a very selfish actress, a very talented woman. I knew her quite well, and I know that everyone that worked with her had to slap the shit out of her at one time or another because she had no boundaries mm -hmm. and insecure in ways you can't imagine. And But she was a not, you know, I mean, I liked her, and I thought her performance in Lolita was brilliant, only to find out later that Stanley Kubrick wanted rid of her but couldn't because she had already shot too much, so they had to put up with her. Because she was totally method, mm -hmm. which is a pain in the ass when you're directing a movie because no matter what take you do, is that good? Can I get my acting coach to look at it? No, we're on a back, you know, your acting coach can't look at this, you know, kind of thing. But uh, Shelley uh, asked after... the. Uh, Helen, which did not make the money it should have. And one of the things Curtis didn't like about the way it was handled were the one sheets showed Debbie Reynolds dead. Oh, the biggest that's spoiler like the, the of end all. of the movie. That's yes. the last two minutes. Yeah, so that's the poster you see going in. Oh, yeah, it's actually, I just looked at the uh, poster this morning. And so and that's, that was that's so Curtis, the poster. And so the movie made no money. And then Curtis got one more opportunity. It was called The Gingerbread House when it was being... Uh, put together mm -hmm. and then Shelley said I want Curtis so fine so Curtis flies over to England and they begin work on the gingerbread house he gets Sir Ralph Richardson Lionel Jeffries great British character actor that uh, 
you know, made a lot of children's movies and things, but you may remember him from the first men in the first men in the moon, the mm-hmm. Harry Re Harryhausen movie, where he gets a cold and destroys Mars because everybody gets his cold. Um, it's a great, he's a great guy. And uh, so, what? Who, whomever slew Auntie Rue uh, didn't do very well. It kind of went on a double bill with like Scream Blackula Scream or something, because you know how they were, or Frogs, who mm-hmm. knows what they put it with. But Curtis was considered kind of a second tier George Cukor. In other words, he worked well with children and aging actresses. And he was gay, so w- what more do you want? Mm-hmm. I mean, he knows what to do with these women and keep them placated. Now, these movies kind of obviously had this massive heyday in the 1960s and 70s, um, 70s, leading kind of, and it follows the same path as exploitation Mm. film in general, where we see it kind of come into fruition in the 1960s and really kind of um, take off in the early 70s and then peter out. Could this exist today? I mean, we saw this happen with this kind of first generation of Hollywood starlet, where they came up in the 30s and 40s, and then by the 60s, we this is where their career went. Could something? Well, could this do, do ever return? You want return? to know what's interesting about what you're asking me is that every other year someone will say, "Why don't we remake Baby Jane?" Mm-hmm. Which they did in the '90s. I remember well, it on Brian TV. Brian Taggart, who just died, <coughs> who wrote Poltergeist Three mm-hmm. and Visiting Hours. Brian was a lovely guy, and he just died. And Brian wrote a screenplay, "Whatever Happened to Baby Jane?" for Lynn and Vanessa Redgrave terrible movie not very good although some people can if you can look at it without even thinking about the original you might get some enjoyment out of it so they already remade it with oh yeah belong yeah and that it it was a tv movie Mm -hmm. it went nowhere but even though you have vanessa redgrave it's very sad um but to answer your question you could remake any of the horror hag psycho bitty movies but not with actresses musicians madonna Cher, lady gaga Christina Aguilera, you na- all those bitches. They all, <laughs> they all hate each other, and they all... Could you imagine Madonna and anyone share in an old house? See, I question if we could still do it, because even... Um, it would be hilarious, happened, though. It would, it would definitely... And, you I know, would would be like, it. it would be like music... Vi- Look, here's my music video. Oh, yeah, nobody saw that. But, but I remember even just a couple of weeks ago, there was a thing, um, a news article where I, that I read where I think the New York Times had put in something like Madonna still performing at 60 or some type of headline that alluded to the fact <laughs> that she was yes. 60. And that there was this massive um, kind of backflow against that, thing, that they yeah. didn't want her age shamed and that, you know, and, and many people came to her defense saying, yeah, why would you even say that? Does it matter that she's 60? She's still performing. She's a, you know, Jagger, an idol. He's 100 and he's, you know. But that seems to be what is leading the headlines See, now. See, it's is women. That, yeah. Men, women. Are get, men are getting away with it. Yeah. I no think that with women, at, you don't say that anymore. Has, could you imagine going up to Morrissey and saying, you know, you're a psycho bitty? It's it's a completely different thing now. So I feel like our society in general has kind of shifted to the point where I question if you could um, kind of do the exploitation in the same manner that you could have back then, where at the time it no, was... No, I don't think you yeah, could. Yeah, I think that you would have I to... I think remaking any of that would not be a good idea. Mm-hmm. I don't think you can remake certain movies. I mean, they're remaking West Side Story, and I really... You know, if you're going to remake it, I can almost... I, that's probably not a good example, because maybe there could be a version that's as entertaining as Robert Wise's Academy Award and won 11 Oscars because you're hiring people that can't sing. 
Mm-hmm. So you're dubbing them. And that was so common in the 60s. It was almost like a kind of variation on the psycho bitty thing. You know, instead of hiring Julie Andrews to do My Fair Lady, they hire Audrey Hepburn, and then they have to hire someone to sing for her. Yeah. Or, you know, and they did, this with, they did this with everything. You know, they'll get Hello, Dolly, and instead of hiring Carol Channing, they get Barbara Streisand, who's too young, but has a great voice, mm-hmm. but whatever. It's just like there's no rhyme or reason to why these things happen the way they do. If someone has the money to do it, we're going to see a remake of probably everything. Nice. Well, I am um, definitely kind of intrigued to see, like, if this could ever come back. But I wanted to end by It talking. could come back if someone wrote a book mm-hmm. that we could turn into a movie that, that told a story like that. It, it could even be men this time. It, or, but no, it should be women. I think it should be women. Yeah, it's, I'm always intrigued, especially with these kind of small um, – kind of subgenres that exist in one particular uh, area of time to, to kind of tease out whether it is an artifact of this time, like it is something that could only exist in the mid-1960s, well, or you, is this something that could exist well, at well, any Let me point? give you a question. What, in the mid-70s, Hammer Films went into a period of lesbian vampire I, Yeah. <laughs> could that ever come back? I don't uh, think so, actually. I was um, going to say. I mean, not, it could, but it's going to have to be much more like what there was a lesbian werewolf movie I watched last year um, that was Brazilian, I think. Well, and it was snaps, fantastic. Ginger Snaps. Yeah, yeah, Ginger Snaps, definitely. Um, but they feel completely different, whereas we watch like Vampiros Lesbos, and the lesbian kind of takes well, the Elizabeth, center Elizabeth stage. Well, Elizabeth Batory. I mm-hmm. mean, the very first audio commentary I ever did was uh, Harry Kumel's Daughters of Darkness with mm-hmm. Delphine Sarig and John Carlin from the Dark Shadows movies. And that was a perverse, gorgeous movie shot in, in Belgium with uh, uh, beautiful lighting. And of course, that inspiration was Marlena Dietrich once again. So you see, I think these icons is the key, Rebecca. Yeah. Marlena Dietrich, Joan Crawford, Betty Davis, Greta Garbo, Hedy Lamarr, Ava Gardner, women that were part of the studio system that embellished everyone more stars than there are in heaven. Th- those were the dreams. Do See, we I still have we, those today? We, I don't think we have the dreams. Uh, the only way we have something remotely like them is this amazing kind of renaissance of Marvel comics. And I've gone to enough of these with my young buddies to know that for two and a half hours, or three, considering how long these movies are, you go into a different world. Mm-hmm. And I think we all want to go into a different world in 4D if possible. You know, get your ass, you know, shook up and you're watching, you know, Deadpool or you're watching the, you know, Avengers Endgame, which is, you know, this is all fantasy. And art always reflects life. And whenever we've had in our culture a a, a catastrophe like a world war or something, we get horror movies. We do. We get more violence, which is what I talked about on the show last week uh, with with, with Trump. I think we're going to have, you know, I mean, I don't know. Yes, there could be more psycho bitty movies, but it would have to be. You know, we'd have to pick these actresses. Maybe Nicole Kidman could beat up Sharon Stone, you know? And I think to a degree we've seen, um, she was the one that I was thinking of. Because or Helen we've Mirren seen, and uh, Judy Dench, yeah. I don't know. We've seen moments of Nicole Kidman almost venture into it. Because yes, if we, we think about Stoker um, and the one, I can't even remember the name of it, but the one that she did last year, it was a Western, where it's this moment of kind of realizing her own age, that she's with someone younger, that she may not be able to reclaim her youth. Like I've seen her do roles, specifically Stoker, where it's almost there. I 
think we, what we may not get, we're not going to get the caliber of stars mm-hmm. that created the, because let's face it, the whole premise of exploitation was the exploiting of former glamour queens. Yep. When we run out of former glamour queens, we have to reinvent what the genre could be. So we would take actresses that, like the, the Helen Mirrens and the Judy Denches and the mm-hmm. Maggie Smiths and all, the Gorgons of our time, and reinvent them as these characters, yes, while we still have them. So the last thing I want to talk about, you were talking a little bit about before we started. So we are right at the end of June right now, Pride Month. And you were telling me about how you think that um, the gay community has kind of embraced some of these films. They've embraced, well, the gay community, I think, is responsible for a lot of Betty Davis and Joan Crawford's career. Uh, There was a a story that Tennessee Williams used to say that by the time he allowed Tallulah Bankhead to play Blanche Dubois in Streetcar Named Desire, you could no longer look at it as a drama because all the queens in New York would go and buy all the seats, and everything Tallulah said was hilarious. I always depended on the kind of the stranger's darling. And this had gone from a tragedy of a woman's, it to this high camp comedy. So I think that if you want to talk about the, the... way gay men perceive this originally. I'm talking about the kids today, but from my generation, Mm -hmm. Judy Garland, Susan Hayward, Barbara Stanwyck, these women picked the wrong men and they suffered for it. Gay men responded to that. When Judy Garland sang The Man That Got Away, that became a gay national anthem because we all knew men that got away. Uh, We all had these kind of... uh, Barbara Streisand moments, which is why Barbara's an icon, which is why Cher, Cher's an icon, because she doesn't age. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lady Gaga has grabbed that. You know, They all know which side of the bread is buttered, trust me. And so do the men. Th- these men that are like taking their shirts off, they're not doing it for women. Don't ever think that. The, the whole, it's like, but what has changed is that while Judy Garland is respected now and everything, gay men are not quite so uh, uh, conflicted. At least I'm hoping they're not. I don't. I don't see it in, in the kids I see today. They're all self-empowered. They don't need to see some woman suffer. To f- they're, they're having their own lives, mm-hmm. and they're not having unhappy lives. I think when we were in the closet, in the darkness, unable to be who we were, ashamed of who we were, uh, exo- you know, our families didn't want to know. That is when people like Judy Garland and Betty Davis, and especially Joan Crawford, meant something because we could see their pain. We understood the rejection. And we also understood that you had to look damn good to survive. So I'm not saying these values are things we should hold on to, but I don't think we should ever forget them. And as a film historian, I love to remind people, even of the un-PC things, because it was all, it, it all kind of, everything that's happened, Rebecca, from the beginning of cinema to now has made us who we are. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't change anything. I mean, I came out of the closet when I was 16. I just looked at Richard Chamberlain the other day. Richard Chamberlain didn't come out of the closet until he was 65. You know, shame on him for that. But I do understand why he did it, because he was afraid he wouldn't get hired. And that's, he's a victim of his time. So I don't put him down for that, but... A lot of us, I mean, I look at kids today and when I talk about gay subject matter and I've done a couple of universities, I look at them and I say, you are where you are now because of me, Mm -hmm. because I stood up and was myself. Now, granted, I was in San Francisco, Los Angeles and New York, the three, you know, I flew over the, the states that voted for Trump. So I don't know what those people are like, but I'm just telling you that in my life, Everything's been, I've been kind of endorsed and, and very happy about everything, but I've stayed in areas that are gay friendly. 
But I think the culture has changed. And I think thanks to the internet and social media, we're able to be who we are. And I don't think it matters. I think everything you do is important. And if a movie has changed your life, I don't care if it's Judy Garland or Betty Davis or, or Natalie Wood, then that's, that's incredible. And uh, I just think that I would hope that the one thing from our conversation tonight is that it will make people, make guys and gals get out and look at movies. You have something I didn't when I was your age. I didn't have an internet or YouTube I could go to. Mm -hmm. I had to get rabbit ears and pull them around through the snow so I could watch Son of Dracula at one in the morning when I was in Walla Walla, Washington when I was eight years old. And I just saw, and you know, and I was glad to see this because I could hear the dialogue. These can, you can watch anything now. And people, it just kills me that they don't seek these movies out, including silent movies. Mm -hmm. Don't be afraid of silent movies. And I will say um, that out of all of the ones that we've discussed tonight, I think that the only one that was not available on Prime for a whole $2, maybe two ninety nine max, was on Alice. Um, what, which, whatever, what's the, whatever happened to Ann Alice? Yeah, whatever happened to Ann Alice. Now, that's produced by Robert Aldrich, mm -hmm. directed by someone else, but it has an incredible cast. And of all the bitches in Psycho Bitty movies, Geraldine Page is the queen. Well, that one I definitely have to pick up you on really DVD. Do. No one is nastier. But than that this said, um, Straight Jacket, Hush Hush, Sweet Charlotte, Dead Whatever Happened Ringer, to Baby Jane, yeah. Dead Ringers, all of those are available on Prime for like two ninety nine, and I don't even think I had to pay for some of them. One of them just came out, Dear Dead Delilah, mm -hmm. which was Agnes Moorhead's last movie. And it's shot in an antebellum southern mansion. And it's kind of a train wreck, but it's fun. You will love it. I need to see that Dear one. Dead Delilah. I think it's from Vinegar Syndrome. Okay, I'm in. Well, thank you so much for joining me tonight, David. And, oh, I've, and for we've been meaning, this. I've been meaning to do this. We must do this again. I agree. So thank you so much. And audience, please check out some of the Hagsploitation movies. Again, it pains me to say that word hag, but um, some of these, uh, actually, I love Psychobitty. I think that kind of I think Psychobitty is my favorite term. Yeah. Because, I mean, that, that encompasses not just older women, but cruel nurses like uh, Louise Fletcher and One Flew Over the Cuckoo's mm -hmm. Nest. You know, any of those bitches out there. I love it. So, Psycho Bitty Movies, please check some out. Um, tune in in two weeks for Nightmare University. And please find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Where can we find you, David? Well, I'm at SinisterImage.com. I also am at FilmsInReview.com. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. And I also have a documentary coming out in the next couple of months that's called Time Warp, The Greatest Cult Movies, in two parts, and I'm in part two. And then we're doing one on nudity in cinema, oh, and nice. these are directed by Danny Wolf. And we're going to get, in fact, I'm going to invite you to the NoHo 7, July 12th, to see the first two. I would One's love to. One's 130 minutes, the other's 150 minutes. So I'm doing documentaries. Audio, I have a new audio commentary from VCI, The Human Monster with Bela Lugosi, oh audio my gosh, commentary. Oh, I haven't seen that one in forever. Yeah, mm -hmm. Dead, Dead Eyes of London. And mm -hmm. I did that with Fief Sutton, who wrote for Cheers. Oh, nice. And he was a big Lugosi fan, so I brought him in with me. And we do dozens of Lugosi impersonations. Oh, my gosh. Well, thank you so much for joining us tonight, and we'll be back in two weeks.
Nightmare University is a Fangoria Podcast Network original produced and hosted by Rebecca McKendry, producer Natasha Pacetta, executive producers Dallas Saunier and Phil Nobile Jr., associate producer Jessica Safa-Vemer, art and design by Ashley Detmering, sound recording design and mixing by David McKendry, music by The Serpentines, for Fangoria, Brandon Wynerdy, Jason Kozlerich, and Rachel Wilson.